John 9. <clears throat> this was not an easy one. Um, I, I changed the size of my text twice. Um, I changed my uh, outline completely. So whatever you have in the order of worship, completely disregard. <laughs> completely. There will be some, uh, some quotes that are still the same and all that, but uh, otherwise, get it. All right. This, sometimes this happens. God works on his timetable, not mine, nor Cinda's. So let us remember that. John 9, please hear the word God. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed or applied it to the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed, and he came back, seeing. Let's pray. Father, Jesus was able to make this man's eyes see, though he was born blind. May the light of the world make our eyes see. Help us to behold his glory, that we might humble ourselves and entrust ourselves to him more fully. For your glory and our good, through Christ, who is the light of the world. Amen. When I graduated from high school, uh, we went to one of our favorite restaurants. And uh, so my family was celebrating at this restaurant. And my mom, in a very uncharacteristic manner, I think, had a little too much wine. Um, and it was then that she spoke words that I had never heard her speak before. And I have never heard her speak since. For it was in that sort of unguarded moment, uh, she revealed that prior to my conception, she had miscarried a little girl, which was probably heartbreaking in an even more profound way for her, since she was the oldest of nine and the only girl, and she had ended up having three sons. So, never spoke of it again in all the years since. You kind of wonder why she kind of hides this thing in her heart. As I was thinking about suffering in light of the man born blind this morning, I was wondering if she asked why. Don't we always usually ask why when we're hit with suffering? Why has this happened to me? Have I done something wrong that uh, brought this to me? All kinds of questions come up. 
And sadly, my mother didn't seem to kind of engage anybody with these questions of the soul. This text allows us to ask some of those questions. The disciples, in fact, asked some of these questions. So let us go to uh, what Jesus instructed his disciples as we think about these things. I want you to know that the light of the world sheds light on profound and persistent suffering. Get used to that last phrase there. It's going to pop up quite a bit. Profound and persistent suffering. Let's start with the recognition that the source of profound and persistent suffering is sometimes mysterious. We see Jesus, who has uh, almost been killed okay, for blasphemy by the Jewish leaders uh, when he was able to get away because it was not yet his hour, and he's leaving the temple area, and at some point he comes across this man who the text says was born blind. Now, we're going to see that later on in the text when he's dialoguing with the Pharisees, but there was nothing, you know, it's not like he had a sign that said, you know, give money, I was born blind. Okay, we're not sure initially how they knew this, such that the disciples asked this question. But this is a man, let's think about this for a moment. It was profound, and that he had never seen anything. His life was just complete darkness. Imagine for a moment, close your eyes for just a moment. That's all you ever see. He probably couldn't even notice the shades of light that would go on because his photoreceptors didn't work at all. Utter darkness. It was persistent. It wasn't like it happened today and then tomorrow he'd be okay and it might, you know, flit in and out sort of like an old TV set that's not working right. Okay? It was profound. It was persistent. It made him a beggar. He was utterly dependent upon other people for his survival. That's hard. That's suffering. Now, the disciples, when they encounter him, the disciples don't seem to be focused on, Lord, how may we show compassion to this man? They go and begin to theologize. They focus on the sin that they think had caused it. And, of course, in many ways, they start sounding just like Job's really bad counselors, who all they kept doing in the book of Job is saying, you're suffering so horribly, therefore you must have sinned. Job, get with it, confess it, and it will all end. They assume that this man's suffering is a direct result of a particular sin in his life or in his parents. Notice the interesting way they put this. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Now, remember, he was born blind. So if he sinned, it would have had to have been in utero. Okay? So many of us might initially go, well, that's pretty impossible. Really? Let's think for a moment what the scriptures say. What about in Luke, where we see that Mary, who is now pregnant with Jesus, begins to approach her cousin Elizabeth? What happens? <laughs> John the baptizer, in utero, 
leaps with joy at the presence of his Savior in the womb. Well, you can't figure that one out now, can we? Not only that, but we're reminded, perhaps, of Jacob and Esau. And the rabbis would point back to this one, actually, as well. As they tumbled with each other, wrestling for, for position within the womb, such that it caused their mother great distress, and she sought out the Lord. Not only that, but think of Psalm 51, where David confesses, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Or perhaps Psalm 58, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. And so, uh, you know, for us, there's sort of this, uh, there's some testimony of Scripture that we need to reckon with that it's not impossible for perhaps this man to have sinned in the womb. Now, some Jews at that time believed in in a pre-existent state. Okay, and so for them, they would say, before he was conceived, in his pre-existent state, he must have sinned and done something wrong, and so God is sending him to earth blind as punishment. There are also uh, the, the Essenes, who were a sect of, a very strict sect of Judaism. And the Essenes, one of the things they believed in was basically a form of reincarnation. Okay, So that if he had committed some sin in his previous life, God might send him back again blind. So that's sort of how you, we can understand this idea. I'm not, not saying how, or how they might understand this idea. We don't understand it as reincarnation, right? Out of here. Bad. Okay. Clarified my almost misstep. But also, was it that? Or was it that his parents sinned? And in something called the, the Canticles uh, Rabbah, which is a book, the rabbis note that unborn children could be affected by their mother worshiping false gods. So the idea would be that uh, God who sees all things would see this woman uh, creating either apostasy or syncretism and then would inflict the child for the sin of the mother. Okay? We actually see that sometimes. Fetal alcohol syndrome. Crack babies. The sin of the mother being inflicted upon the child in a very harsh way, in a profound and persistent suffering for the child. But we see Jesus claims that it was neither the man or his parents that produced this suffering. It was not a particular sin that caused the suffering of this man who was born blind. There's a warning there for us, I think, that we should never presume to know why another person suffers unless it's crystal clear. There are times when you can recognize, you know, the sin and the consequence. Okay? If someone steals from their boss and now they're unemployed, you kind of, you can recognize the clear consequence of the action, right? Okay? But there are many times where there is no obvious reason. There are many people who are poor, for instance, They suffer, but it's not because of their sin. 
There are other factors that are involved that can create a condition of poverty. And so we need to be very careful when we're looking at someone else's life and, and sort of think, well, obviously they sinned because they're suffering in this way. We must be very, very careful. Jesus warns his disciples and therefore us. Now, all suffering is tied back to one sin. Adam's sin. Okay? If he doesn't sin, there's none of this profound and, per- and persistent suffering that goes on, or even little suffering that goes on. But we're talking about a particular sin creating a particular sor- sort of suffering at this point in time. And so while my mother's miscarriage, in a sense, is connected to Adam's sin, it's not necessarily a result of anything my mother did though she felt the weight of it, I'm sure. Jesus says that this man was suffering from this so that the works of God might be displayed in him. It's not about sin. In this instance, it's about what God wants to do, how God wants to manifest or or make known his works in the life of this man. And so what Jesus is really kind of communicating to us is that the suffering that we might experience is in part given so that it might display God's work. That God would would reveal his goodness in some fashion, in some way, through the suffering that we experience. Now, that does not mean his suffering was good. Not saying that. But what I am saying is that God would ultimately work it for good, and he would ultimately work it for his own glory. He would work it for the good of the man, and he would work it for his own glory, even though that which he experienced itself was not good. And we think of this in part because of places like Romans 8.28, but also the idea that we find in the Westminster Shorter Catechism question, actually answer number one, that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so when Jesus meets this man, what he's going to do in the, in eventually what we'll see this next week more, in the bestowal of salvation upon this man, he's not just going to physically heal him, he's going to spiritually heal him so that he might glorify God and enjoy him forever. And so when we think about our lives and what God is doing in his providence, we need to keep that answer to the shorter catechism in mind, is that God is working so that I will enjoy him forever and I will glorify him forever. And so Christians, as we meet people who are suffering profoundly, we should exercise wisdom as well as compassion when we come across them. We should not be as the disciples were at that moment, seeing it as merely academic or theological and therefore really not expressing any compassion towards this individual, not working to alleviate the suffering that they feel, experience, if possible. So the source of profound and persistent suffering is ultimately to bring glory to God. Now let's get to what Jesus did. 
Jesus is the source of healing for profound and persistent suffering. Jesus builds upon that thought. He says, therefore, we must work the works of him who sent me. Jesus is talking about acting, not theologizing. I don't know why I can't say it. Theologizing, that's the word. He's going to help this man. He's going, to use him, he's going to use this as a sign, which we'll talk more about next week, but he's going to help this man, not just parse the sin in the man's life. Okay? But he's doing not just his works, so to speak, but the works of him who sent me. He's going to accomplish the will and purpose and the good things that the one who sent him sent him to do. It's important that we note that. Jesus and his disciples, remember, it's not just I. He said, we must work the works. Jesus and his disciples were to do the works that, dis- that are displayed or manifested in other people's lives, in restoration and in wholeness. Now, there's a deadline, so to speak, because Jesus says, while it is day, for no one works at night. This was back before, you know, Ben Franklin and the kite, all that fun stuff. Uh, you know, they, had, they would have lamps, but it wasn't like today where, you know, they can work on the highway at night with those big floodlights and all that kind of stuff. And how you can work on your car, guys, or maybe ladies. Some ladies like to work on cars. At night, in your garage, because you've got the lamps and lights. Jesus is saying there's a deadline. When the night comes... We'll no longer be able to do this. We must do it while we can. And I've been waiting years for this moment. What I have here is a thing of popcorn. I found this thing of popcorn a couple of years ago when I was cleaning up in the annex. It must have been a work day, okay? So now this would be circa 2012. When I found it, I looked, oh, look, I found popcorn. How nice. Best used by September 2007. <laughs> the time for popping this corn and, and having it manifest its goodness to the, the glory of God has come and gone. Okay? It's useless popcorn now. Jesus is saying that there's a time frame, a best used by date, so to speak, and that is while Jesus is still on the earth, because he notes, while I'm on the earth, I am the light of the world. And when he's gone, the world loses a measure of light. The deadline was his own death. He's urgent in accomplishing these things. He's on the clock. He's moving forward. And so we see that this man who has never seen the light is about to have his whole life changed. Now, what is particularly interesting about this Okay, now let's think about chapter 8 for a moment. And we were in chapter 8, we saw a lot of what we call total depravity or total inability. The, the inability of humanity to respond in faith to Christ. And we're going to see some more of that at the, in the rest of chapter 9. Okay, This man did not ask to be healed. There's no record of him initiating this. Jesus is picking up this task on his own accord. He is moving sovereignly to heal this man. 
Okay? This is, you know, part of when we talk about a sign, it points to something greater than itself. This is a sign of the sovereignty of God in salvation. That he's taking a man who cannot see and makes him to see. And it's not something that this man sought of his own accord. He did not say, Jesus, heal me. Jesus just healed him. We keep this in mind. Jesus is the one who took the initiative, and yet it, it wasn't automatic. Not how strange this all sounds for a moment. Jesus spits into the earth, makes some clay or mud, puts it all over the guy's eyes, okay? And then he says, go to the pool of Shalom. Okay, now I'm blind. Not, not only am I blind, but I've got mud in my face, and I'm, I probably look pretty stupid. And Jesus says, go to this pool that is southwest of, of town. It's not like it's 100 feet away. He has to navigate himself, or someone has to help him, to the pool where he will wash, and then he will be able to see. That's why I thought of Naaman. He's the exact opposite of this man in the sense of this man is a beggar. He is destitute. He's nobody, and Nahum was somebody. He was a mighty man of valor. Okay? Go back and think about that text in 2 Kings. And note how, how many oddities there are. Because it was the Lord who gave the Syrians victory over Israel. Well, a lot of interesting stuff right there. This man, when he's told to go wash in what he calls that muddy stream of the Jordan seven times, says no initially. It seems too foolish to him. It seems beneath him to do this. And amazingly, we find no such complaints by this man. He hears the word of Jesus and by faith goes. So it wasn't automatic. It required a response of faith on his part, just as it required a response of faith on Naaman's part, which after fighting for a while, he had. Now this pool that I mentioned was one that was fed by the Gihon Spring. And so uh, there's a spring, there's a channel, it goes into the pool. And what's significant about this particular pool is, uh, remember when we talked about the Feast of Tabernacles, and all of this is still happening during the Feast of Tabernacles. That is the pool where they got the water that was used in the water-pouring ceremony, of which Jesus mentioned, I am the water. Come to me and drink. Okay, I'll give you living water. What's particularly and additionally interesting about all of this is that in Isaiah 8, it says this in verse 6, Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the sons of Ramallah. Okay. That's the same pool. Okay. One, it's in Hebrew, and the other one, it's in Greek. Okay. That's, that's the difference between the names. Okay. And so in the days of Hezekiah, what was going on is, is the people were rejecting that which God provided for them in this pool, so to speak, and they were looking for salvation in the wrong place, in the northern kingdom and in Syria. 
They're looking for, for salvation, so to speak, deliverance from the Assyrians in the wrong place instead of God. And so Isaiah accuses Israel of forsaking the, the true salvation that is re- represented by this pool. And so as we ponder this, we, we have a lot of sense, okay? The one sent by the Father sends the blind man to the pool that is called sent in order to be healed. John loves irony. (laughs) There's a whole lot of irony sort of there. Jesus was sent to send somebody to the pool that means sent, so that he might not only be physically healed, but ultimately spiritually healed. Now what's interesting is, verse 11 indicates to us that this man knew it was Jesus. We're not sure exactly how he knew it was Jesus, but this man did indeed act in faith in the promised word of Jesus. Part of what this miracle points us to is the fact that Jesus is God. Precisely because he heals a man of blindness, and actually that is one of the most common miracles in Jesus' ministry, healing blind people. But not only that, but he was blind from birth. And no one had ever heard of that ever happening. We see in Psalm 146, The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Isaiah 35, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. And this is speaking about the ministry of Messiah Okay, And so this is the, the purpose of this is to reveal to these people that Jesus is the divine Messiah who has come. Good, good news. As we see once again, Jesus as a compassionate healer inviting us to trust him with the places in our lives that need to be healed. Now, let's do a little theology for a sec. Okay, what is the basis for our being healed? We, we sang from Psalm 103, which mentions that he heals all our diseases. Okay, and so let, let's keep that in mind. Okay, we, we, we're not going all Benny Hinn up here, don't worry. Okay, I'm not going there. But let's keep that, keep that in mind. In Isaiah 53, it does say, by his stripes... We are healed. And in the context, we, re- we recognize that that's largely about sin. But that's not all it's about. Benny has a point, a small point. Okay? Um, those guys, they have a small point. Our physical healing is indeed a direct result of the suffering of Christ upon the cross. There's no, you know, this miracle is tied to that event which is future for this man. Okay? And in fact, all who are in Christ will ultimately be healed. It's just that most of us will be healed physically after the resurrection. Okay? 
we will be healed of our spiritual suffering, of our emotional suffering. When we see Jesus face to face, we will be healed of our physical suffering at the resurrection. Okay? So it's not like Deb over here, okay, whose eyes are deteriorating. It's not like Deb's going to have lousy eyes for all of eternity, you know? Christ is going to heal Deb. Ethan will finally understand what Ethan's been trying to tell us every Sunday morning. Those groans that he emits, all of that will now make sense. He'll be able to process and communicate, and not only that, but to run and to jump and everything else he's probably longed to do his entire life. Jesus will do all of that for those who are in him. But we have to wait, in large part. But it all ties back to his suffering on the cross. And so he who suffered for sin heals us from all the suffering that plagues us. So now let's deal with the wait. Jesus sustains us in persistent in pervasive suffering. The vast majority of us will wait. We're not going to experience the healing power of Christ like this man born blind did. Okay? We will wait. But let's note for a second. I mentioned it just so briefly. There are different kinds of suffering. Not all suffering is physical. There's, there's also emotional suffering. And we have knowledge of that within our own congregation. We know people who suffer with schizophrenia. We know people who suffer with depression, a pervasive depression. There's all kinds of emotional disorders that people will experience, and it doesn't go away in this lifetime. Jesus will deal with that. There's also spiritual uh, suffering that takes place. The, the dark longings of our hearts that God has not wiped away. One of the things as uh, the discussion about uh, SSA, I'll, I'll shorten it for adults, well, for the kids. You adults hopefully know what I mean. They are not the only population group that suffers with persistent longings that they don't want. Every addict deals with longings that they can't get rid of, they can't erase and make go away. And God does not always come and take those things away. Sometimes he asks them to follow him in the midst of those longings and temptations. And so they experience spiritual suffering. Okay? There's all kinds of suffering that are impacted by this. But what I want you to see, brothers and sisters, is that God glorifies himself first off by granting sufficient grace to deal with the ways we suffer. Paul, 2 Corinthians 12 notes, three times I pleaded with the Lord. And I want to say, only three! <laughs> Only three? 
Three times I, I pled with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Paul wanted deliverance from whatever was bugging him. Whatever that thorn in the flesh was, he wanted to be free from it. And so he, he prayed repeatedly, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And there are days I hate that verse. Because I'm afraid of weakness. Paul continues, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. So Paul didn't have this idea that I need to be powerful in and of myself in order to fulfill the ministry of the gospel but Paul learned the hard way that it was not about his strength, but that his weakness meant that he had to rely upon the power of God to fulfill the ministry that had been placed upon him. So he began to see that his weakness was used by God for good things. That while it itself was not good, God used it for good. Think about Johnny Erickson Tata for a second. Think of all the lives she has touched for the gospel. Not despite the fact she's a quadriplegic, but precisely because she's a quadriplegic. She wouldn't wish that on herself. She wouldn't wish that on her worst enemy. And yet she recognizes God's strength in the midst of her weakness, which enables her to speak to people who suffer profound and persistent suffering in a way that I never can. It opened doors to ministry that are amazing. God glorified himself in that. And one day, he'll heal her. She'll be thankful, very thankful for the grace of God. Not just in her life, but it overflowed into so many others. And talking about this sort of thing, Tim Keller says, before we get the joy and love that help us to face and overcome suffering, suffering must first empty us of our pride and lead us to find our true joy and only security in Christ. So just because you suffer, it doesn't mean it's gonna, it's automatic. We have to embrace the suffering by faith. We have to allow it to do its work in us, to humble us, and to redirect our vision away from ourselves and our sufficiency, or supposed sufficiency, that we might look upon Christ and His suffering, that we might draw our identity from Him and not from anything else. There's another place where Paul talks about this. Earlier in 2 Corinthians, this treasure is in jars of clay. Where the jar, the gospel was the treasure. The jar is weak. The jar is fragile. But 
the gospel is powerful. It's precious. Okay? Here's the temptation. The temptation is that we can start to get our identity from our weakness and our fragility instead of from the power of the gospel, the true treasure that is within through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to show you what this looks like for a second in a negative sense. When I was in Florida, <clears throat> I got there was a church planning conference, and since I was the chairman of his minister, the minister's work committee, uh, I went down to the conference in order to meet a guy who wanted to come to Central Florida and do church planting in our denomination. And uh, so I met with this guy, and I heard his story. Little did I know that I would hear the same exact story three times. You know, that meeting, then the committee meeting, and then the presbytery meeting. What he focused on, and it was almost word for word. I knew what he was going to say you know, by the time I got to Presbytery. I knew exactly what he was going to say. And it was all focused on why he had to go to Florida because he had uh, some particular illnesses and he could only live basically in Hawaii or Florida. Isn't that horrible? <laughs> nah, it is horrible. Because he suffered a lot where he was. But what defined him seemed to be the weakness, the fragility, the problem, and not the call and the gospel. And the first time I heard it, it didn't bother me all that much. But by the time, the third time I heard it, I ended up kind of going to myself, this isn't going to work. This guy's going to be a complete downer because he's focused on the jar and not the treasure in the jar. And it's very easy for us to become, to gain our identity from our problem than from Christ himself. Okay? And we need, that's why we need to continue to remind ourselves about the treasure that lies within. So secondly, God also glorifies himself by growing us in Christ through suffering as we keep our eyes focused on Christ and his suffering. Okay? We, we, we read from James 1, and that's part of what goes on there. It talks about how, you know, count it all joy, brothers and sisters, when you face uh, trials of many kinds. Why? For uh, these trials produce steadfastness or perseverance, and this perseverance when it you know, helps you reach maturity. We see the same thing in Romans chapter 5. You know, count it all joy, brothers. Okay? God is going to supply us with maturity, but in order to get there, we have to live by faith in the midst of our suffering, whatever it might be. Then we grow. That's not the way I want to grow, but that's the way that God grows us. He who is far wiser than us has seen fit that this is often how we grow. As Tim Keller also mentions, suffering produces growth in us only when we understand Christ's suffering 
and work on our behalf. We cannot disconnect our own suffering from His. Let yours drive you to His, to meditate upon His. And so therefore you recognize, first off, that your suffering is not punishment. It's redemptive. If you are a Christian, if you are in Christ, the things that you suffer are not because you've been bad, but that you, so that you might bear a harvest of righteousness in due time, as it talks about in Hebrews 12. God wants to do good things in the midst of your suffering. So don't waste your suffering. I think someone wrote a book, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Yes, John Piper did. Don't waste your suffering, but bring it before Christ. Humble yourself and and proclaim Him. So, we live in a world that is marked by profound and persistent suffering. Jesus reveals Himself to us in this passage as the only solution to that suffering and in the lar- we see it in light of the larger text of Scripture. It is only because of his own suffering in our place upon the cross. And so the healing work of the cross results in some miracles. We read about those in not just this gospel, but the others and the acts of the apostles. But it all often begins in our conversion and into our sanctification as we suffer while trusting in God's goodness and keeping our eyes on Christ crucified. Then the Father, we see, will eventually remove all of our physical, emotional, and spiritual suffering when we see Jesus and when we experience the resurrection. And the question is, will you trust Him? Not in the safety of that seat, but when you're suffering. And when the person you love most on this earth is suffering. Let's pray. Father, uh, I thank you that you do not hide the realities of life from us, but that Jesus walks in the midst of these things. And I thank you that Jesus was not unmoved by the plight of those he loved, but that Jesus was moved to action on their behalf. And so we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the way in which he bore our transgressions, that they were laid upon him and he was afflicted, not for his own, but for ours, that we might know not just forgiveness, but indeed we would know healing And so work in us to trust you in the midst of our trials and troubles. Help us to remember that you will, in due time, exalt us by your mighty right hand when we humble ourselves before you in the midst of our struggles. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.